Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. This is The Guardian. One in nine are saying, I am in serious financial difficulty. That's not a politics of grievance. That's not a politics of envy. That is a politics of lived experience. And I think that the challenge for the government is that just governing in a world where there are limited, obvious, mainstream levers to pull, it's hard. It's hard. Hello, lovely people of pods. It's Catherine Murphy with you. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me, smiling at me, in fact, down the line from Sydney, is my dear friend Peter Lewis, who is executive director of Essential Media. Hello, Peter. Hola. (laughs) We're going to be talking about the polls and specifically the latest Guardian Essential poll uh, for this fortnight. I think if you've had an opportunity to read the poll either on the Essential website or on uh, the Guardian Australia website, you will have already gleaned that it's pretty grim reading for the Albanese government, I think it's fair to say. Uh, The Prime Minister is net negative in terms of his voter approval. This is the first time in Anthony Albanese's Prime Ministership where that has been the case, at least on our numbers. I think it's fair to say that people around the country are pretty cranky about sustained cost of living pressure. I think there's quite a few sort of indicators in this survey that leads us to that conclusion. So there's lots and lots to unpick. So let's crack on, Peter, and let's start with the Prime Minister. We may as well start at the beginning. So He's net negative in terms of approval. I went back just because I was curious, like what was the high watermark of the honeymoon? It was 60%, basically 60% voter approval at his height. And it was a very sustained honeymoon. It didn't stick at 60% week after week, but it was sort of 59, 60 for quite a long period. Uh, He's down now to 42% voter approval in the latest numbers. Also, you know, we'll cover off both these things. I I just want to flag, I hope you're all sitting down, listeners, like regular listeners, I mean, I hope you're sitting down because right now I'm going to crash through my ban on reporting the two-party preferred plus number. We're going to pull out the bad stuff. We're going to pull... (laughs) We're going to pull out the horse race. It's the end of the year. We can see Santa coming at us across the skies. It's a reindeer race 
Anyway, I'm losing it. Anyway, we are going to talk about the TPP because we don't normally, uh, if you're a new listener, sorry, of course I should explain, uh, I'm sort of reluctant to foreground two-party preferred numbers in the fortnightly reporting because we're trying to sort of make the poll less of a horse race and more insights into particular issues in terms of how I report it. But it is the end of the year and relevant. So anyway, that was a long rave from me. Peter... Let's talk about approval and the 2PP. Where are we? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with approval. Now, really important, the wording of this question, it is not, do you think Anthony Albanese is a good or a bad guy? It is, do you approve or disapprove of the job he is doing as Prime Minister? And likewise for Dutton, it's, do you approve or disapprove of the job Peter Dutton is doing as opposition leader? Now, you are correct. For most of this first half of the first term of the Labor government, um, which is where we are about now, it has been overwhelmingly people approving of the job he has been doing. That has shifted. 42% approve, 47 disapprove. To put that in context, only 42% disapprove of the job that Peter Dutton Dewey is doing as opposition leader, although still fewer people approve at 39. I do think the job is the operative word because so much, I think, of what the Prime Minister is currently being judged on is this inflation cycle, the so-called cost of living crisis, which I think we should try to unpack a bit. I have got a thesis that this is a fool's errand to govern on cost of living, but that is the frame that the government is in at the moment, and it is having a consequence in the voter support. Also, 2PP+, plus. one of the reasons we don't get fixated is because this is only a relevant number once every three years, and the rest of the time is a hypothetical. Were an election to be held this weekend on these numbers, it would be more likely than not that you'd see a minority Labor government. The number is 48, 47, 6% undecided. Mm. In fact, that yeah. means who knows because you don't know where yeah. the last 6% go. But again, it is significantly down from the high point of February this year when it was 55, 45. And the trend really since August has been downward and the Libs rising. Um my theory is that that is just, and it's bared out in some of the other numbers, that if economic management is becoming the key criteria, it has traditionally been a brand advantage for the coalition. One of the really interesting things that we picked up in the lead up to the last election was that the Libs lost that brand advantage and that was a real um, fillip for Labor. In fact, Labor masterfully reframed economic management as managing cost of living, which mm. is a really good thing to do in opposition because it takes the whole of a complex set of economic challenges down to the kitchen table. It's a more difficult construct when you're actually the people in charge of the kitchen table. Mm, indeed. So, okay, we're at the kitchen table. Let's just stick on cost of living and, as you say, drill down mm. a bit deeper because there's some numbers in this fortnightly survey that indicates that majorities basically think the government's not doing a good job managing cost of living and other issues. Uh, I think 66% say not doing a good job 
in relation to cost of living. And you've set us up quite nicely, Peter, by saying that Labor kind of utilised that frame in opposition to present Scott Morrison as being sort of out of touch with uh, ordinary you know, ordinary concerns. And now obviously the frame becomes, I was going to say the frame becomes the prison. I think that's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? The frame becomes the, what's the frame that, <laughs> no, I'm not even going to go, I was thinking hangman's noose or something. What do they call that thing? Yeah. No, we both, neither of us have nailed, we're, yeah. We're both at a loss. We've got to practice before we do this stuff. No, I know, I don't know. Done. We've got to, yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. We've, we've totally fluffed the, that analogy. But anyway. But there's something there and I'm sure the listeners yes, can forgive go us. with it. Thank you. Yes. So anyway, and, so yeah. why, don't you, um, why don't you share some of those numbers, some of those headline numbers? So I think the really interesting thing on cost of living, we've done a bit of a breakdown, as listeners will remember, we, we break down by what I call economic self-identification, whether people say they're comfortable, secure, struggling or in serious difficulty. So in terms of that rating the federal government's performance on cost of living, if you're comfortable 50% below average or poor, if you're struggling, it's 76. Mm. And if you're in serious difficulty, it's 80. And bear in mind that struggling and in serious difficulty is now more than 50% of the population. So... There is a definite correlation there between yeah. material circumstance. And, you know, it, it's it's worth pausing, I think, as well from time to time. And I think it's relevant to some of the other things we'll talk about later. Half of the electorate are reporting to either be feeling like they are struggling or in serious difficulty. And that's about a 14%, I think, this time of people. Yeah. One in nine are saying, I am in serious financial difficulty. That is... That's not a politics of grievance. That's not a politics of envy. Survival. That is a politics yes. of lived yeah. experience. And I think that the challenge for the government is that just governing in a world where, as we've discussed in the past, there are limited, obvious mainstream levers to pull, fiscal, which is sort of not putting as much money in the economy at budget time, or interest rates, yeah. which is pulling money out by making yeah. people Increasing with mortgages borrowing costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it is really hard. Yeah. It's hard. It is really hard. It's hard. I think, I think you're right too, sort of just touching down a little bit more on that point. You're right, and that's why, you know, it's, it was useful to tease out those numbers, right? Uh, it's mm. There are a lot of people in serious difficulty. Yeah. And the reasons for that are obvious every time we go to the supermarket, consume any service or attempt to pay a mortgage. Uh, but I think it's sort of doubly difficult really at the sort of perception level for the government at the moment because there are people whose material circumstances are really difficult and the government sort of becomes a lightning rod or a focal point of that disaffection about people's material circumstances. But it's also the funny flip side, isn't it, of, you know, you and I have been raving together for many years and we've often painted this picture of Australia has missed the sort of really big economic tsunamis that came through the world in the global financial crisis and so forth, right? Obviously, things have turned down here, but not to the same extent as, as many other economies. So what I'm trying to say is Australians have sort of got used to a low inflation environment with pretty high standard of living, even though wages have been stagnant. 
right? Mm. And that has fundamentally shifted and quickly in terms of people's lived experience. So even people who are sort of comfortably off will be noticing this step change in their lived experience. And so all of that blows back against the incumbent government Mm. and blows back hard. And that's what we're seeing in these numbers, right? But the other thing that strikes me is that the last couple of crises, the response from government was to throw money at the electorate. In the global financial crisis, it was just to get the economy going again. So the government wasn't taking things away or being seen. They were building school halls. They were insulating homes. They were throwing money out. Likewise, when the pandemic hit, the response was to pump money in. And the politics are pumping in. Yeah, you get accused of being profligate or whatever. Having a debt or, you know, not being able to manage the accounts. But compared to being accused of being heartless and and putting extra burdens on people when they're struggling, it's kind of an easier it's, it's, an easy, it's an easier, easier string, string to, pull, to pull, isn't it? And let's pick up just from the point you made a minute ago about the government not having a lot of levers to pull, given where we are in the sort of history of economic reform and deregulation. Governments these days aren't, in fact, powerful at all, really, on, on many fronts. But nonetheless, our numbers this fortnight do lead us to conclude, don't they, Peter, that people are interested in some pretty big responses here. And that's kind of interesting too. We'll have a chat about the stage three tax cuts in a minute because I want to do that Mm. separately. But in our numbers, people are into rent freezes, price caps, all manner of things. Now, this is where, you know, it's easier to ask a polling question than propose a policy. And I do recognise that some of these ideas are probably the product of a Fabian society (laughs) um, meeting meets the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. But if you put them in front of people, there is enthusiasm for intervention in the market, particularly around prices. And it does strike me that cost of living is really a combination of prices and incomes and to really focus on prices, particularly in a week where there was that, you saw that piece in The Guardian last week, that the banks Mm. are earning so much money at the moment that they're actually doing share buybacks. So it's not like (laughs) the pain is being evenly spread. So cap prices for electricity and gas, that's 60% support, place limits on rental increases, um, 62% support, prevent wealthy families using family trusts, again, 55% support. The one I love, mm. uh, super profit tax for retailers. You know, these guys, the, the people you are paying more at the supermarket are also making billions. Good support for that, 56. Yeah. And this goes on. We really had some fun here. Negative gearing on one investment property, which, you know, your guest on the weekend, Alan Kohler, was sort of talking about as well. One-off levy on incomes of people earning more than a million per annum. Yeah, um, 53% of people would go with that, only about 17 against. The only one that doesn't get majority is actually the deceased estates worth more than $5 million. So that inheritance tax yeah. is still the bridge too far. But the other thing is on all of those, there's probably a 10% increase mm. in support from those cohorts who are mm. either struggling mm. or in serious mm-hmm. difficulties. So it strikes me that a lot of these policies would have huge backlashes, but it shows there would also be significant yeah. significant support for them as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we're trying to say is that this isn't real world to the extent of, you know, these being actual proposals. And 
even when proposals like this register strong support in polls doesn't mean there's not a very noisy backlash and we'll get to noisy backlashes and Mm. perhaps elements of the economy doing their fair share at the moment. We will get there. But let's touch down on the issue of stage three tax cuts. Oh, I'll probably actually, we should just do quickly, Peter, shouldn't we? Um, Just there were those numbers that indicate looping back just to the beginning, our conversation at the beginning about uh, Labor for a while sort of had the advantage as economic managers. Mm. That's kind of receded now in these conditions and the coalition has pulled ahead again. Although again, on the numbers in this fortnight's poll, Labor is obviously trusted more than the coalition to deliver better wages for people. But mostly what struck me about that sort of sequence of numbers or percentages that we came up with is that people are pretty I just call it meh, you know, sort of like yeah. uh, most people think, oh, well, there's not really much of a difference between the major parties on a range of fronts. Yeah. That was kind of interesting too. I guess predictable at one level, but also sort of interesting. Well, it shows it's there for the taking. So I will go through these. This was actually a attempt for me to see if different economic frames make much of a difference. Um, so... My working thesis was that Labor would do better on wages and prices than cost of living and the economy. The reality is it's all pretty similar. So in terms of managing the economy, 33 coalition, 25 Labor, 42 meh. Now that's shifted since the election. So the coalition has regained a degree of brand advantage. Although if your core brand is managing the economy, you've only got a third of the electorate. You're not exactly industry super, are you? Yeah, no, no. no. You'd want it to be better than that. Uh, you would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Re- reducing the cost of living pressures, it's basically line ball. That that was traditionally the Labor advantage. They've lost that 25, 28, 47. I thought keeping prices down would see Labor have a, a bigger advantage, but the reality is that the coalition, it's, it's basically the same as cost of living, 28, 25. So I think there is a sense of which cost of living and prices are seen mm. as the same thing, but 47% of people on that cohort and 52 of those struggling just don't see any party. And it's only on supporting higher wages where Labor is ahead 37, 19, 44, undecided. Again, when you're the party of the Labor <laughs> movement, probably 37 <laughs> saying that you're better is, is probably not the... Yeah, you'd probably want that to be better too. Yeah. yeah you're, you're not hitting it out of the better. park, but at least you've got... A, and, you know, to their credit, they are moving through some legislative changes in the face of very, very well-funded yeah. employer campaigns. Um, I'm not, not sure how many people are aware of the work that's going on there and maybe that's got something to do with it. But I, it feels to me that... In terms of prosecuting the cost of living, this tells me there is opportunity if you break it down to the wages and the prices and come yeah, up you, with some yeah. specific measures. Now, again, to their credit, the early learning childcare initiatives are actually dropping prices. Like that is one of those initiatives. There has been some stuff that I think they've rolled out in energy, although the fact that the prices are going up because the mm. companies are making Lasts such big profits bit. really yeah. cancels out any... Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, th- th- it's definitely a different environment than it was in late-stage Morrison, and it feels to me as we get to the end of the year, the challenge will be to almost put a line through the first half and then sort of rebuild and relaunch for the second half of the first term. Okay, so let's do the second half of the first term in two stages. So let's go back to stage three tax cuts, which I flagged Mm. a minute ago and what the numbers tell us about that. Mm. And then I want to sort of end 
the conversation this week just with some thoughts from you because you're sort of you're nibbling at it and I want to be able to allow you to open your shoulders and hit to the boundary, my dear. Oh, you know, seriously, like there's a question about how if you're the government at this uh, at this juncture, how you might reframe the conversation, what you might try and do. So anyway, mm. first things first, stage three tax cuts. Uh, you know, who'd have guessed it? Nobody really likes them very much. Yeah. Well, that's, now, that's probably a bit of an overstatement. Looks, some people do like them a yeah. lot. Yeah. So, so let me step it out. And firstly, we've written a very, very detailed question because, and I won't read it out, but it's on our website because we were very, we didn't want to draw people to an answer. So we've given them a lot of information about how this thing works and why. The top line is really those earning over two hundred grand will get a nine grand a year tax cut those earning 60 grand will only receive a 375 a year tax cut. Now, there is a whole formula behind that. But so we gave people four options. Changes should go ahead as planned in July 2024. The changes should not go ahead at all. And then two in the middle, one of which was the changes should go ahead for those earning less than 200 grand, but we should be deferred for those earning more. So kind of a pause for the well-off. The other is that it should be revised so that they mostly benefit those on the low and middle income. So let's start with the extremes. 20% support going ahead as planned and 16% support scrapping it altogether. They're the two extremes. So with those numbers, you could construct an argument that said 80% of people want to scrap the cut or you could construct a thing that said 84% want the tax cuts yes. to go ahead in some form. It's what is in the middle bit that is interesting. So 41% want it to be revised to more benefit those in lower middle and 22% want it to be deferred or paused for those earning over. But a combination of those would create a supermajority either way. So I think it doesn't say to me that it's as simple as scrapping the tax. I don't think these numbers say that would work. But a rethink and a reconfiguration appears to me to have sufficient ballast that it's worth. It's not my job to tell these people. No, no, it's not either of our jobs. But it feels to me that there there is appetite. So the bit that I think is really interesting is that those who feel comfortable while more likely to say, <laughs> let it go through, give me my nine grand, it's only 30% that say that. So the remaining 70% are open to some sort of recalibration. And just pulling up in terms of putting that pause on, it's 28% would support it not going to them, 26 the reworking, and 16% should not go ahead altogether. Mm. One of the things we have learnt in our polling particularly around this, is that the more wealthy you are, the more likely you are to support the voice in First Nations justice, the more likely you are to support climate change, the more likely you are to support insert good cause here. It is interesting when that post-material voting becomes material. So that's the great unknown, the link between what people say they can um, bear and then what they can actually bear. But there is, I, I do think there is an opportunity here for quite... Would the rich ever campaign for a tax cut? A lot of the lovely readers on The Guardian, because we put this up today as a column, have said, yeah, I'm happy to forgo it. It's just I think I don't know what happens when micro-targeting and anger 
is let loose, but there would have to be more than just, yeah, you know. that's the um, danger in terms of the, the. You know, a dear John yeah. letter to every high income. <laughs> no, exactly. To, to, we've, we've, we have seen how that works. We have seen how that can be weaponised. Hmm. And of course, you know, it, it just seems unlikely that Peter Dutton would somehow saddle up. Uh, for the national interest when it comes to stage three, although you never know. And yeah, also well. <laughs> uh, we should just tell the listeners in case people haven't sort of followed this whole debate closely, Just I'll just say this very quickly and then we'll move on to um, mm. Peter's thoughts about how you reframe or whether or not wealthy Australians might be prepared to make a different sort of contribution in the current environment. We should just remind the listeners, of course, the Treasurer Jim Chalmers did ahead of the October budget flag or attempt to sort of start a conversation about this, the reframing of stage three, not the chucking out. At no point has Labor said, we'll just chuck out stage three. But Jim Chalmers did last October attempt to have a bit of a conversation, a bit of a inch out along, you know, the edge of the cliff line to see how that might go down. And the Prime Minister at that point was very adamant that breaking an election promise was not a good idea last October. But anyway, it'll be very interesting because we're heading into another budget cycle, obviously, you know, whether or not that can of worms or can of whatever will be opened. It'll be very interesting. But anyway, Let's pull right out of the rats and mice now that we've been considering for the last 20 minutes or so and think about how, if you were the Albanese government at this point in time, Peter, how would you start to reframe this conversation or what Mm. might you do in order to better connect with people who think that the government just doesn't care about them and their circumstances? Mm. How would you play this? Gee, I'm glad I don't have to. But the thinking that I had in the lead up to these numbers was really around another first term Labor government who had the challenge of a wage price spiral, which was the Hawke government in 83, and reflecting on what they convinced a powerful economic player to do, which was to forego short term material interests for long term national interest, and that was the Wages and Income Accord. And I started thinking about the Accord really around the framing of the challenge, but then I also ended up thinking it was quite interesting around what it actually was. So to break it down, firstly, I've been a bit sceptical that notwithstanding cost of living worked as a frame from outside government, I think the challenge is for the government to break things down, and prices and income seems to me to be a way of almost controlling the debate. It feels to me that one of the issues, and I think I wrote about this while you were away um, and maybe spoke to Paul about it, was that cost of living makes it feel like you're being judged by the sticker and that you are being expected to control these things that are outside your spheres of influence unless you really want to change up what you do. But to talk about the prices and the income side of it, allows you to roll out a series of specific measures that you can talk yeah. to. So you can't do everything. Um, you're not responsible for the sticker in the supermarket or how much the oil, oil costs, but you're not walking away from responsibility 
either and you're grounding your political agenda in things that people understand. Because again, cost of living to me feels a bit like the weather. It gets hot or it gets cold and there's not much we can do. Whereas the structure of pricing in the electricity market or the amount of profit a supermarket makes or the rights workers have when they negotiate a wage increase mm, are, tangible things. are concrete things yeah. that the government can work towards. But I think the other thing that just got me thinking about this was the reason, you know, and I, I became an IR writer halfway through the accord. I don't know about the early days. I was still at, at high school. But it struck me that that notion of trading off short-term interest for things like Medicare and world best retirement savings scheme was a considered trade-off, but it wasn't just that. It was also the wage restraint led to economic growth that in the long term created greater benefit. If you look at it now, the risk of both companies maximising profits and rich people maximising their tax break is they're actually setting up an economic system which will if it continues an inflationary cycle and the experts tell us that the worst thing you could do for inflation would be giving wealthy people mm. more money to spend at the moment. Like the driver of a 9000 bucks to a high-income earner is like pouring poison in the water. It's not like giving relief to somebody who's struggling. So is there, again, almost an altruistic self-interest in restraint, both by corporates, because I don't think any of those hit them over the head bits of legislation on price will work. But is there a world, and I'm like clearly no economist, but is there a world where businesses sort of pull back on the amount they're pulling out mm. for the long-term national interest? Maybe not. Or otherwise, is the political sell for wealthier people to say, if you just pull back now, you're going to not just get the benefit of your money not being frittered away in inflation, but you're also going to have a more cohesive society. So I guess the end point is, I think, retrospectively, if there was a triumph of the Hawke-Keating government, it was in storytelling and to give people a role to play in the way the economy and the world was changing. And I just feel like if, if we get to 18 months more time, we're going to an election and Labor is seen to be managing this cost of living crisis, I think we'll look back and say, gee, they started 2024 with a really strong story about where the nation needed to go. And because they did that well, they were able to make some good decisions that didn't make inflation worse. Mm. Now, again, that's totally from the cheap seats. So, but I, but I think we learn from history. And if you do look back, it's so rare that you see a powerful interest, as the ACTU was at the time, much, much more powerful than they are now, giving up something they could get for a longer-term interest. Like, I can't think of another time it's happened. No, I know. And it's it's what makes that policy period so interesting, really, uh, was that sort of alignment mm. of personalities and interests that basically set up the bedrock of the Australian economy for the 30 years that followed. And as you say, though, the core of that has always been sort of market economics in return for a social contract, right? That's that's always been the bedrock of it. But in relation to this issue, there is a more 
obviously there's your favouring a world where you set a bunch of specifics and then you go about it and you sort of scaffold your storytelling around those specifics. This is why we're doing this, that and the other thing. Mm. And this is the trade-off we're asking you to make because we all share these common values and, you know, and we all we all benefit from a more equal society. Um, yeah, I look, I mean, instinctively... <laughs> I sound pretty no, naive, No, 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 I? instinctively <laughs> there's something there. There's definitely something there. It's quite interesting to sort of think about, if we think about the sort of energy and focus and this, I, I don't... I don't want to set this up as a binary because that's just so much bollocks, but we've seen this sort of story, practicality and storytelling arc from the government around many areas in the international relations space over the last sort of 18 months. And that's not me saying that they've had a priority offshore rather than in Australia. I honestly think that's completely untrue. But I think if we see how they've sort of set up that objective and that storytelling, Mm. it's sort of analogous to what you're talking about, but in the domestic sphere. So it will be interesting to see how you know, because obviously everyone's kind of getting to the end of the year. It's been a very brutal year for a lot of people across a whole range of issues. And it'll be interesting to see how they land uh, over Christmas, thinking strategically into the new year and how they sort of attempt Mm. to, you know, reconfigure themselves for the fight they're in rather than the fight that they wanted to have or the fight they thought they would Mm. be in 18 months ago. That's my impression anyway, for what it's worth. But anyway... As always, my dear, it's been fantastic conversation. Lovely to catch up. We've got one more of these, haven't we, before the end of the year? Year in review. We'll wear hats. I know. We'll we wear will hats. wear hats. And I hope everybody listening will also wear hats, have bingo cards and beverages of choice because we'll put uh, quite a bit of thought into how we sort of sum up this year and how we share that time with you in terms of how we're going to sort of, you know, make sense of the trajectories various of the year. So anyway, that'll be fun. Hope you're looking forward to it. Peter, thank you, my love. Thank you for your time. Uh, We've got lovely Alison Chan producing this week in the studio in Sydney. Thank you to Alison. And the EP of this show is Miles Martignoni. We'll be back with you on Saturday with another episode. See you then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.